0: Welcome. Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve sacrificially. We're so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we're gathering on Saturdays at 530 and Sundays for one service at 10. Come early for coffee and donuts at 930. We look forward to connecting with you. We want to welcome our online audience, It's good to have you join us. I know it's, uh, uh, I almost said spring break, fall break uh, all around. And I know a lot of families are traveling. So wherever you're watching from, uh, welcome. And uh, it's really good to see you all this morning. (sighs) One day, Jesus was on the road to Jerusalem. And uh, he came across a man sitting on the side of the road. The man was weeping. And Jesus said, What's wrong, friend? And the man said, I'm blind. I want to see. And Jesus reaches down and touches his eyes. And the man stands up and he can see and he walks away rejoicing. And Jesus keeps walking on the road and he sees on the side of the road a woman and she's weeping. And Jesus says, What's wrong, friend? And the woman says, My legs don't work and I want to walk. And Jesus just speaks to her, get up, walk. And she walks away, rejoicing. And Jesus keeps walking down the road, and he sees another man sitting on the side of the road. And the man is weeping. And Jesus says, what's wrong, friend? And the man says, I'm a Baptist pastor. (laughs) And Jesus sits down and weeps. (laughs) There are some of you who think that, uh, especially in these days, that being a pastor is a really hard thing. But I'm here to tell you that it's not so bad even in a church with Baptist roots. In fact, I love this job for two reasons. It's here and it's now. I I love this church, Waterstone. One of the things I think I love most about it is all of you are here and our favorite color together is purple. Not red, not blue, purple. Royalty. King Jesus is our leader. As uh, Leslie New began, the great British missionary to India once said, uh, you know, as the elections come, Are you pessimistic or optimistic? And Newbegin said, I'm neither a pessimist nor an optimist. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. That's our political statement. I love being in this church now. After a massive global event where every church has been affected in the world and every church to some degree is replanting and renewing and rebuilding so i love being a part of this and i love that we're in the book of acts which is about the first church plant and it's about renewal and so it's about you know a church that grows not from transfer growth but from disciple growth making disciples And so it's encouraging to see how all that happened with our early brothers and sisters, and it's even encouraging to see at times how hard it is to be a renewing and rebuilding church. Today, for instance, we're going to see some of the issues in the early church, and there was at least two that were happening. One is there's just this massive kind of loss of comfort that's going on, like nobody knows quite what's happening the, with the Holy Spirit at work, with people, new people all around. There's just like this kind of lack of comfort in the church. I think a church that's growing, one of the great issues is this lack of comfort. Let me explain that a little bit. I think when you come to church, and especially a more settled church like Waterstone, we've been around for over three decades now, but we're in this place of renewing and rebuilding. I think what's going to be hard as we navigate and launch new ministries, new ideas, new ways of renewing, for those of us that have been around here a while, it's going to be uncomfortable. Some of the old things that we may have been doing before the pandemic, we're doing no longer. There's change. We've stopped some things. We've started new things. And that lack of comfort is going to be, for many of us, felt. In the old days, (laughs) back in the 90s, when we were a new church plant and really gaining ground and, and building, Nick, our founding pastor, used to get up and say this illustration a lot. And I want to bring it back into our language. He used to say, a growing church is not a cruise ship. It's an aircraft carrier. On a cruise ship, what are you concerned about? Your things. The food, the size of the room, the entertainment. You're concerned about all the things you want to see happen in your community. We're not a cruise ship, folks. Our mission is to be a battleship, an aircraft carrier. We're not concerned about the comfort of the room, the food, the uh, entertainment. We're concerned about week after week launching you out on mission to be a people empowered by the presence of Jesus Christ to proclaim His kingdom and demonstrate His love, justice, and mercy to our neighbor. And our job week after week is to launch you out to do that. We are not so concerned with your comfort We are more concerned with your character and your commitment to the mission. The other thing that happens in a renewing church is uh, you can get lost in in the crowd. You you know, if you're one in a hundred, you're pretty known. If you're one in hundreds, you're lesser known. If you're one in a thousand, you often can come into a place like this, a crowd, and, you know, feel that you're not seen and you're not known. But what our text is going to show us today is that one of the challenges of the church is to say, well, that's a possibility to be unseen and unknown, but it doesn't have to be the necessity. If a church is working well, it's working to make sure everyone is known. Our text today is in Acts 6 and 7, it's episodes 6 and 7, of, and the final episodes of the growth of the church in Jerusalem. From this point forward, we're going to be moving out of Jerusalem. Remember, Acts 1-8 is the theme of the book of Acts. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and that's been our first seven episodes, next to Judea and Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the world. So today is our last Sunday in Jerusalem. And what we're going to see in the church is they had some challenges on the inside with their growth and they had some challenges on the outside with people, what shall we say, not being too pleased with their growth. And the surprise in the book of Acts, the first one, is that what launches the church from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and the other parts of the world is not church growth strategy, not like the best preaching and music you've ever heard. Do you know what launches the church out of Jerusalem? Persecution. Didn't see that coming. So let's dive in. Let's look on the inside. Let's look on the outside. And at the end see that everything's upside down. <laughs> Acts chapter 6 verse 1. Here's the first problem that the growing church Faces. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So here's a problem that this church faces. So let me just do a couple of word studies for us and help us understand and get a sense of the problem. The number of disciples was increasing, it says. Scholars estimate, and we've been given some numbers already by Luke in the book of Acts, that now, just sit on this for a minute, right now the growth of the church in Jerusalem is over 10,000 people. Wow. Have you ever been in a crowd like that? 10,000 people in a matter of months. So it's no wonder that the administration of the church has not caught up with the attendance of the church. They've got issues because it's been explosive growth. The entire population of Jerusalem in this day and age was 100,000. So you can see why there was a stir going on in the city. 10,000 people. And um, what was happening is that the, uh, th- they were complaining. Um, I just want to have some fun with you. The Greek word for complaining here is, it sounds like gur (laughs) gur, like All right, griping and complaining, probably in the living rooms and then in the corners of the the synagogues and then in the corners, you know, but it works its way up to the apostles. And what were they complaining about? The widows. Now understand in the ancient patriarchal world that widows of all people were on the margins, especially as we'll see in a minute, Hellenistic widows. A widow, when there was no Medicare, a widow when there, you know, everyone, uh, one was, the family was supported by the patriarch, a widow was extremely vulnerable and needed care and help. And so the Hellenistic Jews were complaining against the Hebraic Jews. Now, a Hellenistic Jew was a Jew... Who was Jewish by religion but probably born outside of Palestine and lived in one of the cities around the Mediterranean cradle, not in Israel so they uh, you know went to their synagogue uh, in their city and so they had the shared religion and shared Jewishness, but culturally they were very different they spoke Greek and they ate their lamb and heroes and I thought that would go over better. Last night they laughed, really. (laughs) So culturally very different, yet they shared Jewish roots. And the concern, well, if you were a Hellenistic widow, is that probably your family did not live in Palestine. And so who would take care of you? Who would help you? And so the Hellenistic Jews were very concerned that their widows were overlooked in this massive crowd. And the Hebraic Jews, those were the Jews that were born in Israel, living in Jerusalem. We know this syndrome. How many of you are natives in the room? All right. Welcome, natives, right? You're, you're the Hebraic Jews. You're the natives. How do you natives feel about, let's say, Californians? Oh, some of you are sitting right next to each other. I see, yeah. How do you feel about Texans? Oh, Paul, that was for you, buddy. How do you feel about Pennsylvanians? Yeah. All right. So we can feel the edge of it a little bit. They're the natives, and uh, they're complaining. Or the, the ones who aren't natives are complaining about the widow's not being cared for. You have this problem. So let me just say, before we look at the solution, uh, something that, uh, I don't know, I just want to get off my chest a little bit. Aren't you strangely encouraged that this brand new church is already having problems? <laughs> I, don't, I find that kind of encouraging. You know, there are those who say, well, if we could just get back to the good old days, things would be a lot better in the church. If you're one of those saying that, let me ask you, when exactly was that? (laughs) I mean, this is the church like weeks old, and they're having significant issues, ethnic, you know, conflict, culture conflict, complaining, murmuring. There's, there are people who think, well, if we could just get back to the church like it was in the book of Acts, the pure church. And again, I wonder, when exactly was that? As long as sinners are leading and attending churches, there will always be issues. The fleas come with the dog. <laughs> and so your primary concern with a church, and I hope that you call Waterstone your church, Your primary concern should not be, does Waterstone have issues? Because let me answer that for you. Yes. Your concern and question should be, how does Waterstone manage conflict? How does Waterstone listen? What's their humility level? How are they willing to engage in the problems that will inevitably arise? in a church? Those are the questions. So let's look at what the apostles do. uh, Verses 2 to 4. So the 12 gathered, all the disciples together, said it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. And then the next verses, five and six, they choose the seven men that Bailey read so well. And... Um, Notice that they're all uh, Greek names, which is interesting. Notice that one of them is a Gentile convert. They lay hands on them and release them to do ministry. So I want to like, bring out now and present to you the big idea of the morning. Are you ready? What the early church learned is what every church needs to do. It's this. Good ministry is shared ministry. Good ministry is shared ministry. What the early church is beginning to catch on to is what Paul would write later, the apostle, in 1 Corinthians 12, when he said this. This is what it should look like. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in every one, it is the same God at work. Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good because we have the Holy Spirit living in us. He empowers us and gifts us to share the ministry in the church. Some of that ministry, like the apostles, is, and, and, and it's interesting to me that in, back in the Acts text, the same word is used to describe both. So the ministry of preaching and prayer is ministry, serving, and the, the ministry of taking care of the widows is ministry and serving. There's no ministry that's above another ministry, and a church congregation needs all the gifts that God has placed in us to be fully functional as his church. Every Christian is gifted because the Spirit lives in us to share the ministry of the church. So let me ask you, how's that going for you? Are you involved at Waterstone? Are you, do you have a sense that you know, the, the gifts that the Spirit's given you, the want-tos, the life experiences, the passions, are you able to find a place here in this congregation where you can invest them and share the ministry of this church? You ask, well, Larry, I'm not right now. I, I want to. Where should I start? Well, I'm glad you asked. Do you know where you should start? You should send an email to like anyone on our staff. It's all on the website, all our emails and say, what does the church need? I think far too often in the West in American individualism, we kind of look at ministry by saying, oh, it's what I want to do. It's what my passions are. It's what, you know, uh, I feel most fulfilled when I do. I really would like to temper that a little bit. This morning, with what does the church need? Because what happens is if you jump in, what's the church need? Your experience with the voice of the church, you'll gravitate to where the need crosses well with your passions and life experience. You will get there. It just may take a little time, but you'll get there. My encouragement to you is to ask someone here, even at the info booth, get, leave your name, what does the church need? Can I just say something? Since the pandemic, do you know what this church needs? People to teach your children. That's one of the reasons we went to one service. It's because we don't have enough people volunteering in our kids' ministry. What does the church need? Kids' ministry. You say, I hate that. I say, get over it. (laughs) <laughs> the kids' ministry is clapping this morning. You know, it's what we need. Do you know <laughs> that in our kindergarten class, we have three men with earned PhDs teaching your kindergartners? You should invite your friends and neighbors to have kindergartners. That's just incredible. What does the church need? Get involved there and you will gravitate to the place where there's a sweet spot of where you really feel fulfilled in ministry. And it's, you know, what the church or the kingdom or the global church needs. Let me just say two other ways to get involved. And I think what these are come out of this scenario as we get an inside look of the early church. There's two things that the leadership's really committed to. We're going to put them up on the screen. The one is they are highly committed to multi-ethnic ministry. Now I know, you know I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, and Paul's actually going to talk about this more next week. We're not quite multi ethnic yet because there's still Jewish people, Hellenistic Jews and Hebraic Jews. But what we do have already is a multicultural church, right? Where there's cultures blending, and will, because of the persecution, and when they leave Jerusalem, it will soon become a multi ethnic community. We see this again and again in the early church. You see, in the ancient world, when you came to faith in any religion or God, it was the gods of your location. It was the gods of your country or, lo- or neighborhood. Those were your gods. That was your religion. And so primarily, listen, in the ancient world, religion was, and I have real trouble saying this word, homogeneous. Is that right? Do you know what that means? Like all the same, same race, same tribe. That was religion in the ancient world. Christianity comes along, and it's startling, because Christianity says there's one God who made all the nations and designed the nations, and He loves the nations, and God's people are there to invite the nations into knowing Jesus. And so, every sense of church is a multi-ethnic community. I'm saying it's theologically warranted. You read Ephesians 2, for instance, where Paul talks about the church is breaking down the walls of racism and, and you know, the, the, the things that divide people in our world. Christianity breaks those down because it changes hearts. Jesus changes hearts. And it's also missionally effective to be multi-ethnic, because the world is divided by race and tribe and party, and to see a place where all of us together, no matter what our cultural backgrounds or ethnic backgrounds, we love Jesus, and that makes us brothers and sisters. That's a beautiful witness to the power of Jesus Christ. It's a taste of heaven before it happens. And so every church, now and you know, every church has a challenge, depending on where the church lives. But every church should try to be. Are you listening? Try to be as ethnically diverse as possible. So one of the ways Waterstone does that is we have a great diversity in our church, and we have a justice team, and we're we're meeting with people of color in our church, and just trying to make sure that we're not having any unseen, unintentional barriers here in a predominantly white community. What are we projecting, and what do we need to change? That work's been going on underground, so to speak, for the last year. But one of the other ways that we are really committed to doing this is what's called relational proximity. And that is by strategic partnerships with churches of color and ministry partners of color. So, we've had a 20-year relationship with His Love Fellowship, with whom we do the Thanksgiving outreach. Tiffany Fisher does such an amazing job. And uh, I just want to add my two cents to something about it. You know, we go down on Friday night, we pack the meals, we deliver them on Saturday. But before we deliver them, do you know what we do? We sit down at His Love Fellowship and pack out their 400-seat auditorium with worship. And I have to tell you, I confess, it's one of my favorite worship moments of the year. Why? Because there's brown people there and black people there and Asian people there and white people there. And it is a taste I get like Verklep thinking about it. It's a taste of heaven. So you need to come down, Waterstone. I want Waterstone in the seats down there. Now you have to come help with the meals. You can't just come to the worship. But come down and worship together before we spread out and bless the city. It's an amazing experience. We live for. You know what else was exciting this last week? We had the fall festival. How many of you went to the fall festival? Awesome. How many of you volunteered? Thank you. Yes, thank you. Now, one beautiful thing that you may or may not have seen, but you remember a few months ago, we stood here in the front and we had um, uh, shared with you that we have adopted two Afghanistan families. And we've come alongside them and helped them with housing uh, through the, our Chan Network, Colorado Hosting Asylum Network, and Denise Chang and her staff of volunteers. And one of the Afghan families was here at the fall festival. It was so awesome. I almost got verklept again. I got tears in my eyes when I did, we did the um, Afghan greeting. And then the wife starts speaking to me in English. They've only been here a few months. It's amazing. And, and uh, the Remples and uh, Nancy Hooper and people are walking alongside them. You need to know, as we multi-ethnic community, that you may have heard this in the news, that right now there's a lot of Venezuelan refugees. Coming to America, hundreds already in the streets of Denver. Venezuela has a 90% inflation rate, 50% unemployment rate. Over hundreds of thousands of people have left Venezuela to survive and provide for their family. We have an opportunity coming where we're looking into getting an apartment that we pay for. And then adopting two Venezuelan families, and we need some of you to come around these families and help them get their kids in school, help them to learn how to shop at King Supers, help them, you know, how to clean their what they need to vacuum the. Ro- I mean, just imagine coming to a brand new country where you don't know the culture or any person, and you come alongside and love them, and help them get uh, navigated to life in this culture, and hopefully at some point exposure to Waterstone and to Jesus. So if you're willing to help, I know some of uh, Denise's team's gonna be out in the informational booth out in the hub, and you can find out how to get more involved with our, our Chan network. So the other thing that they're committed to is the poor and the marginalized. So we have a lot of ministries around that, but one that we want you to be aware of this morning is especially on the marginalized. There's nothing that marginalizes a person more than suffering, more than being a widow, more than losing a spouse or a child or a parent, going through a divorce, losing your job. We have this ministry at Waterstone that trains people to come alongside other people on the worst days of their life. Guess what it's called? Stephen Ministry. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Stephen Ministry. Here's what it is. Here's how you get involved. Take a look at the screens. I'm joined by Steve Carter. Steve, I'm really glad to be sitting here with you. Um, how long have you been at Waterstone? I've been here about seven years now. Seven years, yeah. And the best thing about Steve Carter is that he's my small group leader. You're a good small group leader. Thank you. So, But we're actually, we're here to talk about Stephen Ministry. Yes, and uh, so, Steve, tell us, first of all, what is Stephen Ministry? That's a good question because
1: a lot of people hear about it, but they don't understand what the background is. And Stephen's Ministry is not a project or a program, just Waterstone. It's actually a national organization. Uh, These uh, programs exist in all denominations, Jewish, Catholic, across several churches around the country. And it was designed to help people who are suffering at some point in their life. And it was named after Stephen from the book of Acts.
0: Not me. Not you. yeah, But the Stephen we're talking about today, actually.
1: Exactly. Uh, And Stephen was chosen by the apostles to create a ministry for those who are in need. Mm -hmm. He was later stoned to death. or preaching the gospel. So Stephen Ministry, like I said, is a national organization. It has a special training program so that people aren't just coming into this cold. We go through uh, an extensive training program on how to deal with people and their suffering. Mm -hmm. Mostly, uh, our tools are showing up. That's the biggest thing for us is just showing up, listening, it's very important for us to do so in a non-judgmental fashion. Mm -hmm. And then the biggest thing is loving on them while they're going through this time in their life.
0: yeah,
1: And we walk with people until they find the strength to carry on by themselves without needing our help whatsoever. Yeah,
0: And so like some of those situations could be going through a divorce, loss of a loved one, loss of a job. Loss of a job, just, just any hard number of times things. Of life.
1: Sometimes um, it's a number of things that come together in a confluence and they yeah. just feel overwhelmed. Yeah. And they need somebody to be there and listen to them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So. Steve I you know I have known you quite well over the years I know that you actually signed up to become a Stephen Minister near the end of your long and distinguished career as a Denver police officer so uh, I'm curious just like what made you um, as a police officer sign up for Stephen ministry well to me
1: the two are extremely compatible one I believe that uh, being a police officer is something you do because You wanna be there when people are hurting, you wanna be there to serve, and that's what Stephen Ministers are doing. Mm -hmm. And very similar to police officers and firefighters who run towards the danger when everyone else is running away, Stephen Ministers are those special people who run to those who are suffering.
0: Wow. Wow. And uh, we were talking earlier before we started doing this and you said right now we especially need male Stephen Ministers, just speak a little bit about that. We do.
1: It's been my experience that women are more often willing to come out and share their feelings when they're hurting or when they just need someone to talk to. Yeah. Quite frankly, it's not the same situation with a lot of men. We men often wait until we are a hot mess before we reach out and seek help. Mm-hmm. We don't have as many men in the ministry as we do uh, women caregivers. Right. We need more, because more and more men are reaching out and saying, I need some help. I mm-hmm. need someone to be with me, because yeah. I'm struggling and there's just not enough of us to go around. So while we want both women and men to apply, Mm -hmm. we're especially looking for men to help us at this
0: time. So if someone were interested in getting involved, what should they do?
1: Well, at the end of this service, we're gonna have people blocking the aisles. (laughs) No, I'm sorry. We're gonna have people in the hallway willing to talk to you and explain more about our supervision, because you're not out there by yourself. There is ongoing supervision, our training program, and everything that goes with how to be a Stephen Minister. Awesome.
0: Thanks, Steve. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having this program here. You bet. Awesome. Yeah. So this early church, new and renewing, faced its first challenge, and that was that people were being overlooked in in the congregation and so what they learned and what they built around this struggle was that good ministry is shared ministry and every part every person of the congregation has something to contribute. So I hope that you'll prayerfully prayerfully consider what you can contribute to Waterstone as we replant and rebuild together. I want to move now from the inside look at the church and spend just a few minutes on the outside look of the church. And that's when we move from Acts 6 into Acts 7, and we see not, that, that was Stephen's ministry. Now we wanna talk for a minute on Stephen's martyrdom, his death. Stephen was a massively talented person. I mean, from sitting on the widow's bench and being involved in Stephen ministry he was also extremely gifted as a speaker, which you'll see in a moment, and he also was empowered by the Holy Spirit to perform miracles. So one day he was actually speaking, the word in the text, in chapter seven, or end of chapter six is debating with uh, people, it was called the synagogue of the freemen. So probably Jewish people who had at some point gotten deep into debt and had worked their way out of the debt, and were now free. But uh, Stephen is there, and he's teaching about Jesus, the risen one. And uh, the the text says that they got so frustrated with him because it felt like when you debated Stephen, you were debating the Holy Spirit. May I just say something really brief about that? I'm going to. Uh, Whenever you are in a conversation and Jesus comes up, no matter what the person's reaction to whom you're talking, at that moment, they are no longer debating or talking only with you. They are also talking with the Holy Spirit. So they got frustrated because they couldn't win the debate with Stephen. And they get angry. So they do, and this is all gonna sound familiar to us, right? They start rumors that Stephen was talking against the temple, that the temple will be teared down, that Jesus would tear it down. They start rumors about the, the law of Moses, that the law of Moses was a wrong thing, a bad thing. And they arrest him. And then they bring him, Stephen, before the Sanhedrin. Two weeks ago, we talked about the Sanhedrin. It's the Jewish official government of the day. It sat in a semicircle in a room off of the temple. A very solemn place. The, the leaders of the Jewish religion, all you know, kind of elected to those seats. In the middle sat the high priest, it was in a semicircle, and the person on trial would stand right in the center of the room, surrounded by the leaders of your people. The high priest says to Stephen, Is this true? All these things being said about you? And Stephen launches into one of the most beautiful, powerful sermons in the entire scripture. It's the entirety of Acts chapter seven. I've encouraged you in your small groups this week to actually take time and read this sermon. We don't have time this morning. Uh, You could preach a number of messages just on Stephen's sermon. But what he does is he traces the history of Israel from Abraham to the present day in the temple. The big idea of Stephen's sermon is this. God takes all the initiative to be present with his people. So, wherever his people are Abraham, Moses, David, Saul, wherever his people are, God will be present with them. Sometimes that means the temple. Sometimes that means a burning bush. Sometimes that means a voice calling to Abraham. God is a pilgrim God, he travels to be present with his people, which means he can't be contained by a building or a room, which means, as Jesus says, when now Jesus has come, we no longer meet God in a building, but God meets us through his spirit and lives in us, so we worship him in spirit and in truth, Jesus said in John 4. That heaven and earth now meet, not in a place, but in a person. Jesus is where heaven and earth meet. So to know him is to know God. And to receive Jesus is to receive life, forgiveness of sins and eternity. Well, as you can imagine, the synagogue leaders, the text says that when Stephen was done, they gnashed their teeth at him. (coughs) Stephen at that moment... (laughs) Let's just say he doesn't help the situation. He seems to look up and he says, look, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. Who's the Son of Man? Jesus. That's what the name Jesus liked to call himself. It's a reference to this amazing figure in Daniel chapter 7 as the only one who can approach the Ancient of Days. Jesus is equal with God. Well, the Jewish people said that no human being could ever be equal with God. Isn't it amazing that the Christian religion started among the Jewish people? It never should have gotten out of Jerusalem if it wasn't true. So there's blasphemy now involved. And so that was the one crime that the Roman Empire allowed the Jewish people to handle themselves. If there was blasphemy involved, you could kill them. And they crucified Jesus. In this case, what they do with Stephen is drag him out of the synagogue through the north gate of the city. What they were supposed to do, there were rules about how to stone someone. Was to tie his hands behind his back and drop him headfirst over the wall. So that he was unconscious when the stones started to fly. They did not do this. They just started to throw stones. The stones hit. Stephen's first response, and all this will sound familiar to us, his first response was to say, Lord Jesus, and he says, Jesus, receive my spirit. I'm ready. Jesus, in you, heaven and earth meet. So to know you is to have eternal life. I'm ready. May I just ask you this morning, online, here, don't know why you've come, don't know if this is like your first, why you're visiting Waterstone, but may I just ask with Stephen's words, are you ready? Are you ready for your death? Are you knowing that when you die, believing Jesus, the only man to walk out of his grave by his own power, do you know him? Because to follow him, now is to follow him through death into life. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And the rest of your entire life will be Lord Jesus, I'm ready. Is that you today? The second thing Stephen says is Lord, Don't hold this sin against them. That's right. Stephen, as the stones are flying, he says the same things that Jesus says on the cross. Good ministry is shared ministry. And what Stephen is doing is sharing in the suffering of Jesus Christ, he's picking up his cross. There's a passage in Luke 21 that uh, Jesus prepared Stephen and prepared us. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. Just, Jesus is saying this. They will hand you to the synagogues, put you in prison. You will be brought before kings and governors all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life." I wonder, Have you made up your mind? I'm asking if you were all in. Now, I doubt that anyone's going to go out of here and this week you're going to become a martyr. At least not here. 200 million Christians today are being persecuted for their faith. But not here. I doubt that any of you are going to. But Jesus' words remind us that though we will not face martyrdom, you still really have to contemplate whether you are ready to die for him. Have you made him the center of your world? Have you given over every part of your heart and your life to him? Are you ready to die for Jesus? You know, I, uh, I joked earlier about being a Baptist pastor. We do have Baptist roots, and I'm going to do something right now that we've done maybe five times in 30 years. I'm going to have a bit of an altar call. Based on Jesus' words about standing firm and being willing to die for him, I want to ask you, in this moment, If you're willing to say Jesus you are my everything I want to join Waterstone in this new season of replanting and rebuilding but I want to tell you Jesus right now that I'm all in I am willing to die for you your mission your heart for the world I give you my complete life now I'm going to ask you if that's you and you want to maybe mark this moment and you want to begin a new season of a deeper commitment to him. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand and then I want to pray over you. Now, don't miss it. You can stay seated and still say the same commitment, but sometimes adding a posture is a way to mark a moment that you want to remember. So if today is a day That you want to recommit your life and give Jesus everything, I'm going to ask you to stand right now. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, you are the risen Christ. You are on the move. You are on the march calling your people to fresh adventures and great battles. Those of you here at Waterstone, you now are his temple. Wherever you go, he goes. He's already there waiting to meet you Now, as we worship, He is here. As we go home, He will be with you. Tomorrow, as you go to school or to work or to Walmart or to your neighbors, as you talk with them, He is with you. He will give you the words. When you are sick and suffering, He is with you. And in your joy, He is there. And when you are harassed and marginalized and ignored because you believe in Jesus Christ, He is with you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Look, the Son of Man is standing with you. Amen.